0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, well, we're so thrilled you could all be with us today online and in person for the final message of A Brave New World. So we've been looking at this message I'm titling after Aldous Huxley's novel from 1932. Incidentally, so I Bo- stole the title, so did he. He took it from Shakespeare's The Tempest. That's one of the last lines, A Brave New World in The Tempest. And uh, so anyway, here's what he decided. He felt that the future was gonna look like this. It was gonna be a place where people were genetically engineered, socially indoctrinated, pharmaceutically anesthetized. They were going to be stripped of their freedom, their individuality, and their privacy, and they weren't even going to notice. And, of course, I've been looking at that, and I'm thinking that looks a little bit like our world today. So we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at uh, cancel culture. We've looked at censorship. We've looked at freedom of speech. We've looked at groupthink. We've looked at identity politics. We've looked at, you know, mom mentality, all these things. And I've got one more message for you today. Today I want to talk about sex and drugs and rock and roll. And of course, this might be a bit mature in the theme, and I'm going to avoid the graphic language, but just so you know, and if you've got kids watching, you know that it might be just a little wee bit graphic. And of course, here was Huxley's working theory. He thought that if uh, society let people do whatever they wanted, pursue their very most carnal pleasures and desires, they could be withheld economic, political, and democratic freedom, and they would love the Their servitude. And of course, that was his thesis and that was his working title. And when we look at sex and drugs and rock and roll, let me start by saying this. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with sex, drugs, or rock and roll. Let me tell you what the devil does. Because anything bad in this world is really just something that God made that was good that the devil corrupted. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And I'm going to give you some examples from the scripture on this. It's really quite remarkable. You look at Adam in the garden. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, or at least he puts Adam there first. And if you go in and look at the first things he showed them that he told them that were good, it was interesting. So the first thing God showed Adam was the trees. And he said, these are the trees. They are pleasant to the eyes and their fruit is good for food did you catch that what was good wasn't it so we know food is good food is a good thing right you need food it nourishes your body you're not going to get through life without food and i'll tell you socially there's nothing more important than sharing a meal and breaking bread together with another person remember when we were allowed to do that and you're Remember that? You miss it. You can't even remember it. It's been so long since he broke bed with another human being. And so food is a good thing. But what is the corrupted version of it? If you eat too much of it, then we call that greed. If you eat the wrong type of it, we call that McDonald's. And what the devil does is the devil takes that which is good and turns around and makes it something bad. So I'll tell you the other thing. The second thing that happened in the garden. So he tells him about the food. And then he says, Adam, here's the Pishon River. Down the Pishon River, that that is where the gold is and then he says then he says he actually says it and the gold there is good he actually told him the gold was good so we know wealth prosperity gold nothing wrong with it God created it, it was good but the devil comes along and corrupts it and you know what I'm talking about I'm talking about greed and I'm talking about theft and I'm talking about extortion and all the things that people do with money that are bad and that's why Paul years and years later says this the love of money is the root of of all evil everything God created good the devil corrupts and makes evil so then the third thing that appears in in the in the garden the very next thing is sex you go I don't remember that one sure you do right remember there was Adam he was by himself he was alone and God made him a woman and brought her to him naked you say, well, then what? <laughs> what do you think? Well, then what? He didn't have to talk about it. I don't have to talk about it. You know what happens next, right? Although I did have someone tell me the other day, he told me this. He said, you know, Pastor Mark, that Adam was the world's first Mennonite. I said, how do you figure that? He said, well, who else would stand beside a naked woman and be tempted by an apple? <laughs> No, I don't think that joke is funny. I agree with you. It's not funny. And if you don't like that joke, don't write me any letters. The guy told me was Abe Friesen from Steinbeck. So so, (laughs) write him a letter and let him know you didn't like it. Speaking of Mennonites... (laughs) So i got to tell you this story. When I was in high school, I had an English teacher, Mr. Isaacs, and he made us read two books. It was interesting. We read them back to back. You know what they were? Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World. Some of you probably had that same exercise. And there was a reason why they were back to back because there's this huge contrast between these two books. There's a, a connection between these two authors, by the way. They knew each other. In fact, when George Orwell went to college, he went to Eton College, and one of his professors Professors was, are you ready for this? Aldous Huxley. And so 17 years later, Huxley wrote his book, 1932. 17 years later, George Orwell writes 1984. Most of you are familiar with that theme. He sends a copy to his former professor, Huxley. Huxley sends a note back to him, thanking him for the book, but challenging him on on the premise. And he says, I don't think all this kicking and flogging is necessary to enslave people. He says, I think all you have to do is get people to love their servitude, and you can enslave them ever easier. So he thought his version was much better. And so the big difference was this. See, see, we know, we've read 1984, and we know that in that people were deprived pleasure, inflicted pain, and that's how the power, Big Brother, controlled them. In Huxley's Brave New World, the city-state controls people quite the opposite by letting them do whatever they want and being as sexually promiscuous as possible, and as a result, they're enslaved in another fashion. So to put it simply, what happened was Orwell dreaded, or or, sorry, he perceived a future where that which people dread would ruin them, whereas Huxley perceived a future where that which people desired would ruin them. And the big question is, which one of these people is right? And of course, here's my theory on this. For years and years and years, you've heard me talk about this. I always thought it was Huxley until we had a global pandemic. And all of a sudden, all our rights and freedoms got stripped away and we had to lock down our churches and lock down our businesses and lock down our homes. We weren't allowed to leave the province and people started squealing on their neighbors and we hired thugs to hand out tickets. And we started to put people like pastors in prison, true story, and I thought maybe we're veering over to 1984. Or maybe they were both right, which I think is probably the truth. They were probably both right. I still lean more towards Huxley. By the way, have you heard the latest coronavirus joke? Ah, oh, never mind. I don't want to spread it around. And it wouldn't matter anyway, because if I told it, we'd have to wait 14 days to see if you got it or not. And now what I've decided now that we're back in lockdown, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just telling inside jokes from here on in. And you do know why it's called the novel coronavirus. Ah, uh, it's a long story. Okay, there you go. That's my best shot at the COVID jokes. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about sex and drugs and rock and roll. And, of course, I'm going to spend more time on sex and drugs than I am on rock and roll. There is a big connection to the whole rock and roll world, so I'm going to bring that in. And, obviously, rock and roll is a little bit of the catalyst that moves sex and drugs through our culture. And we'll talk about that and get to that. But I want to talk about sex, particularly, like I said, it's going to be a mature subject. It's just the way it's going to be. But when we look in Brave New World, interesting. The whole premise, and it's really the real key in it was that, that what Huxley perceived was if uh, if you could have people that could al- were allowed to pursue any of their carnal pleasure, you could really ensnare them. And this is in particular what he did, was his world, there was monogamy and marriage that was completely forbidden. You weren't allowed to have a monogamous relationship of any sort. You weren't allowed to have marriage. Why is that so important? And not to mention the fact that the state was raising the kids, not the parents. So essentially what he did was eliminated the family. And see, if you eliminate the family, guess what? Then people don't have any sense of commitment or care to anything or anybody. You begin to live a completely, totally, and utterly selfish life. And that was sort of the the idea that if people were not interested in anybody but themselves, they would just pursue their own their pleasures and there would no be any higher aspirations in life the higher aspirations of of you know nobility and honorability and virtue and sacrifice and uh you know servanthood to others and why would you pursue any of those other things and the family has become the most powerful institution in the world throughout all of history for why because people will do things for their family that they wouldn't do for any other human being Someone once said this, that during the apocalypse, the last man on earth will spend his last hour on earth looking for his family. And I know it's true, because that's exactly what Tom Cruise did in War of the Worlds. And if Tom Cruise would do that, then I would do that, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Some of you are going, I don't know what I would do. Well, of course you would. Not because Tom Cruise did it, but because that's got value. That's got virtue. This whole idea of being committed to someone more than yourself, living for a purpose greater than yourself, is what family is all about. And if you can eliminate the concept of family, what happens is you eliminate this thing of commitment and of caring for one another, and people just begin to live in this carnal state. And I would suggest to you that our world is heading more and more that direction. Less and less people are getting married. Less and less people are living monogamous sexual lives. And what they are doing is they are wanton in their sexuality. Now I want to paint a little picture for you today. So supposing we had... So an alien spaceship, they were coming down to Earth, maybe to capture us or destroy us or something. And they went and parked, you know, above the atmosphere and they tuned their sensors and they started watching our television and watching our movies and, you know, surfing our internet because they're studying our culture. What would they see if they were from outer space? I'll tell you what they would see. They would see a culture completely and utterly obsessed with sex. Every station they turned on, every movie they watched, everything they surfed online, sex, 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 sex. They would also come to this conclusion that it was mechanical, that it was sterile, that there was nothing relational about it. Because you look, you watch these movies, you watch these TV shows, and the sex is always the first thing people are hooking up before they even know one another. And they would look and say, wow, these people have absolutely no control over their animalistic carnal desires. They would go, these people are weak and pathetic and have no self-control. Let's attack them and rule the world. Now, of course, those aliens don't exist, but we have other aliens that live among us. Do you know who they are? Teenagers teenagers are aliens to this planet they're newcomers to this planet they're just trying to figure things out and guess what they're watching the same things that the aliens were watching the same tv shows and the same movies and the same pop culture and the same internet and these highly impressionable minds are being influenced and they don't know right from wrong i am worried you should be worried about the next generation and the values, I mean, look at, there's, there's no religion anymore. Anywhere you look, it's all about me, 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 and myself, and, and immediate gratification. And see, and this is where rock and roll comes in. And because rock and roll, pop culture, and pop music, this has been the purveyor of the, the, this, this milieu that we live in, this highly charged sexual environment. And it all began in 1956. And you'll never guess with whom, Elvis Presley. It's Elvis Presley's fault. You say, what? Well, I'm going to prove it to you. In 1956, he was an up and comer. He was not yet a household name, but he was an up and comer. He had sort of some things going on. And what he did was he appeared on the Milton Berle show in 1956. And he did his infamous song, Hound Dog. I'm going to show you the clip. And I'm telling you, guard your children's eyes. Here it is. 1956. You ain't Milton Berle Show. Here it comes. There it is. Oh my goodness. Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? That was scandalous in 1956 you say what i'm not joking he got dubbed elvis the pelvis a name that stuck with him for the rest of his life he hated the name and they thought this was the most highly charged sexual thing that had ever been on tv 1957 he's on the ed sullivan show some of you remember this story he got Shot from the waist up. They did not show in the lower half of his body because it was too scandalous. And see, this is what I think happened. 1956, 1957, everybody saw that, that this moment, this scandalous moment, this huge degradation of human sexuality, it launched him to stardom. And so for 65 years since that time, people have continued to push the envelope in pop culture and in the world of rock and roll. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And every year, if I'm going to be noticed, if someone's going to pay attention to me, I got to go a little bit further than the last pop star did. That's why Madonna and later Lady Gaga started showing up on stage in their underwear, for goodness sakes. Why are they wearing their underwear? Why not get people's attention? That's why. And many of you will remember 2014, the Super Bowl halftime show. You remember what I'm talking about. Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson, and the infamous, the notorious wardrobe malfunction. And we all saw it. I'm not showing it. Goodness, no. But you all know what happened. Do we really think it was a malfunction? We all know, every single person that saw it knew, in front of millions and millions of people, a premeditated plan and deliberate moment. Why? Why not, as far as they're concerned? You get the notoriety, you get your name out, you take it to the next level. And of course, a few years later, the same thing happened to Adam Levine at the Super Bowl. You remember, wardrobe malfunction, his shirt fell off. I mean, the poor guy was standing there half naked. Oh my goodness, nobody wants to see that, do they? You got that right. And, and, you, and you look at me, you go, really? Really, Adam? You're going with this? You think we really want to look like that? The answer is no. But you get my point. What they're doing is pushing the envelope of decency a little further, a little further, every time with every artist, with every year that goes by. I want to tell you the story of Hannah Montana. How I many you know who Hannah Montana is? Disney little princess. Beautiful. My daughters grew up watching Hannah Montana. They always watch. I used to watch it with them. And of course, we know who Hannah Montana is. She's Miley Cyrus. Grew up in a Christian home. You know her dad, Billy Ray, you know, the achy breaky heart guy, poor fella, and the mullet. And anyway, she brought up, was brought up in this Christian home. She was baptized at the age of 12. Do you know that she wore a promise ring, a purity ring? during her teenage years, promising to her parents and to God that she would remain pure. But then after Hannah Montana, the girl next door, had run its course, what was she going to do to break into the world of pop music? Because it wasn't happening for her. And she shed her hair, and she shed her clothes, and she appeared on a wrecking ball completely naked. That's the song, Wrecking Ball, the video, Wrecking Ball. Did the most bizarre things, you remember. She got naked and licked a sledgehammer. You know, how come when Miley Cyrus gets naked and licks a sledgehammer, they call it art? When I do it, I get kicked out of Home Depot. what's, What's that all about? And you know, I'm not the only one who's tried it. You know who, who else tried it? Betty White. You all know who Betty White is? <laughs> you <know>? got <laughs> to You got up. Betty White just kills me. Do you know that Betty White is 99 years old and still acting and still kissing hammers? She's a riot. She's hilarious. Now, here's where I'm going with this. You understand. Now I've sort of built this case. So you understand where rock music and pop culture is going. They have to push the limits. They have to, they have to offend your sensibilities or they're not going to get the notice they want. So you may or may not know this about me. I'm a big music guy. I love music. I watch all the anthologies, all the documentaries. If there's one on the History Channel about some band, I'm watching it. I know music way better than you think I know it. I probably, you could not stump me on name that tune. I'd probably get it. I am that good. And one of the things I do, one of the things I love, is I like to watch and see what the up-and-coming songs and artists were. And so I would like to, emphasis on the like, I would like to watch the Grammys. And I've tried... Every, every year I try, but every year it's becoming more difficult. In 2021, it went over the top. And some of you know where I'm going with this. So we were watching it. There we were in our family room. We were about, I don't know, only a third of the way through. I saw what was coming up. I said, Kathy, we cannot watch this. And I turned it off. And I didn't see it. But I read about it the next day. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the rapper Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. And the two of these did something on television that could only be described as pornographic. There's no other way it can be described. I didn't see it, but I read all about it, and I heard all about it. And what they did was just unbelievable. On national television, on network television, during prime time, and we know for a fact there would have been kids watching it, and they did something so obscene, so pornographic, and she defended herself saying this, that it was all about women's empowerment. And I have a simple question, how does female degradation, how does self exploitation, how does, how does uh, objectifying your body in public on national television, how on earth does that in any way empower women? And sure all the male rappers cheered her on, of course they did, they love that kind of stuff. But if you ask me, if you look at this, this set the women's movement back decades and decades. The very thing that they have railed against, that women have been objectified as nothing more than sex objects, these women went and did, and then claimed it's their sense of sexual woman's empowerment. And I'm telling you, when I saw this, I thought, I really miss the good old days of old-fashioned feminism. You know, this type. We can do it. You know, strong, bold, females that say, whatever you can do, we can do. Where's that? I miss feminism. If this is the alternative. And let me give you a little sidebar here. That I think is really important. That I don't believe anybody has done more for women's empowerment in the history of mankind than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ empowered women. Go look at the story. He lived in a time, in a day and age, where women had no rights, no freedom. They had no economic power. They had no divorce rights. They had nothing. The men could divorce the women, but the women couldn't do anything. And if a husband left her destitute, she was destitute. And Jesus comes along and he treats women with incredible respect and decorum. So much so, we always talk about, you know, his big famous apostles, Peter, John, and James. Those weren't his best apostles, his best disciples. Go read the story. Who are the most faithful? Who are the most dedicated? Who are the most engaged? They were Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and some of these other women. They were there when when the others scattered. You go look and read the book of Acts and we have at least two women that are named among the apostles, Junia and Priscilla. And I'll tell you something, Jesus didn't invent this. You go look and read the Old Testament. You know that Deborah judged all of Israel for 40 years, some 3,000 years before Margaret Thatcher was even born. This is an incredible story when you look at how God empowers women. And where are women the most empowered in the world? I'll tell you where. In the Western Christian world, that's where. Because God understands something about that. And so when I look at these pictures and I see what some of these women out there in the world, music and pop culture and art are doing and acting like common prostitutes, I think they're, they're setting the movement back decades and decades. But here's the big question. Here's the big question. This is the, the, the moment. What do we do about it? I always have the surprising answer for you. Are you ready for the surprising answer? That's what I've been doing in this series. What do we do about it? The answer is nothing. Seriously, Pastor Mark, we're going to do nothing? That's exactly what we're going to do. We are not called to do anything. And I'm going to prove it to you. Because there's nothing we can do about it. Because you can't actually change your world. You actually can't change people within the world. And I'm going to show you the answer. Because you can't censor them. You know what I think about censorship. I've talked all about that during this series. Censorship doesn't work. So I'm going to tell you what Paul says about this. Because Paul the Apostle, Jesus, the rest of the disciples. They lived in a time. Particularly in the Greek part of the world. Asia Minor. There was far more sexually broken and perverse than our world has been. And everything that we've seen, everything that we are seeing, and I'm not going to describe any of it, it all existed in Paul's day. And the kinds of things, you can go read it for yourself. Go read about the Greek empire and sexuality. You will be shocked. And yet this is what Paul writes. Because he saw some of these things creeping into the church in Corinth. And he said, some things that are not even named among the Gentiles, you're doing right in the church. So he writes in this letter and he rebukes them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what I have to do, what have I to do with judging also who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves. From the evil person. So he explains it here in some pretty great detail. I want to make mention of one word. The, the kind of catch-all phrase that we see in scripture for sexual immorality is right here. He uses it three times. And in the Greek language, that one word, which is, encompasses all the aberrant sexual beha- behaviors, whatever you can think of, are in that word. The Greek word is the word pornia which I think you know what English word comes from that. And he uses that word. And I'm not going to define it or describe it. You can figure it out. And so anyway, he says, you can't separate yourself from these people in the world because otherwise you have to leave the world. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, you're going to find these people. But for God's sake, don't let it come into the church. Don't let it creep in here. And don't you live like the rest of the world. And he says, we have to judge one another. We have to hold one another uh, in account. He says, God will judge those people. Oh, don't make any mistake about it. God will judge those people. He will deal with those people, but you can't deal with those people. There's nothing you can do for it. And you know why? Because you cannot change people from the outside in. You could legislate whatever you want, but it's not gonna work because you haven't changed people's hearts. And even Paul admits this in the book of Romans. He said the, the law didn't have any power over people because of the weakness of the flesh. Or in other words, He says, even the law, even the Ten Commandments didn't work. Not that it wasn't righteous. It was, but it didn't work because it tried to work from the outside in. And the only way you can change people is from the inside out. And the only way you do that is by bringing them into a personal relationship with the living God. You all know what I'm talking about here, don't you? And that's what he was telling us here. He says, you know what? You're going to be in this world. You're going to see things you're not going to like. There's not anything you can do about it except keep yourself unstained from the world and what I want to do is I want to take just a couple of minutes here and I want to talk about God's original intent for sexuality because I think it's important for us to talk about this and I'm going to give you another verse that's out of Hebrews chapter 13 and in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 it says this marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers God will judge and what he does is he contrasts sexuality in the marriage bed and sexuality outside of the marriage bed. And he says within the marriage bed, within the confines of the marriage, Sexuality is not sinful. It's honorable and all. It is, the bed is undefiled. There's no sin in sexuality within the marriage bed. But anything outside of that marriage relationship is called fornication or adultery or premarital sex. Call it what you want. Sexual immorality, pornea. Anything outside, he says, God will judge those people. And he says, I want you as the church. I can't change the world. I can't tell the, tr- the world what to do. But I can tell you what to do. This is what Paul's saying. And he says, within the marriage bed. And you see, here's why it's so important. You say, why would God care? I'll tell you why God cares. Because God created us and we're his children. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when a man and a woman come together in that intimate sexual relationship, there is nothing on this planet more intimate and vulnerable than sexuality. That moment, you are not only uniting sexually, but emotionally, hormonally, spiritually. It's two human beings coming together in this way of completely exposing and becoming vulnerable to one another. Why on God's green earth would anyone ever do that with a stranger? That's why God's offended by it. This is his intention for it. Let me tell you one little sidebar on this too that's sort of important that people don't know. It has to do with virginity. And uh, you can, I've, I've written a whole chapter on this in my book, A Greater Passion. So if you want to know the rest of the story, go read it there. But here's the shortest, shortest version of it. When a man and a wife come together on their marriage bed for the very first night, you all know there's a spotting of blood. And that spotting of blood is a symbol of the blood covenant that this man and woman They have not entered into an agreement. They have not entered into a contract. They have entered into a blood covenant for life, one with another, and it was sealed by the shedding of blood. Why would you ever give away your virginity? And yet young people treat it today like it's some dreadful thing that needs to be discarded because it's a millstone around their neck. You say, Pastor Mark, give your head a shake. There's no virgins left in the world. Nobody gets married as a virgin. They do in this church. We marry dozens of them every year. People who have saved themselves from marriage. And they've told us about it. And you know what else they've said? They said, we're so grateful we waited. We're so grateful we were able to enter into this lifelong relationship with another human being without all the sexual baggage that so many other people bring into it that messes everything up. And I could tell you story after story, and I'm not going to. And so one of the things I do when I challenge people that are getting married that are, because we get a lot of people in this church, let's just be honest about this. People come to this church, they come to Christ, they're excited. A lot of times they come, they're living together. And they'll come, they'll ask us, say, say, will you you marry us? And I'll say, well, I always ask this question, always. I say, are you living together? You will not be surprised. Many times they are living together. And we tell them this, we say, we will not marry you. We won't even agree to marry you until you move apart. They say, why? What difference does it make? We've been living together for three years. What's another three months going to do? I said, I'll tell you why. Because someday you're going to have a 15-year-old daughter. And <laughs> your 15-year-old daughter is going to say, oh, I'm so in love with Jimmy. And I just want to go move in with him. And you'll have no authority to say no to her because you wouldn't do the same thing yourself. And you create moral authority. Sure, you've made mistakes. Sure, you've, you've blown it. But you can start again, start afresh. And so I tell them that, and I challenge them that. I've never had anyone defy me on that yet. They've listened to that, and they go, you know what? He's right. If I have a 15-year-old daughter, that's exactly how I'm going to feel about it. I want the moral authority. Every last one of them has moved out. I had one guy, he lived in his semi-truck for three months. He had nowhere to go. I said, you better get used to it. You'll probably spend a lot of nights in there once you're married. (laughs) Probably shouldn't have told him that. (laughs) But it's so exciting to see that when people get their acts together and realize that God has something so precious for us. And so I don't care what the world's doing. God has given us this beautiful gift called sexuality, and we need to cherish it for what it is. It's a gift. Last thing I want to talk about, and I'll just spend a few minutes on, is, of course, the drugs piece of this, sex and drugs. And, of course, in Brave New World, the drugs was a big part of this. And what the drug was in Huxley's Brave New World was a drug called Soma. And this is how he describes this drug, a drug that was dispensed by the government, given out every single day. People popped it like candy, like Pez, literally. And he said it had all the advantages of Christianity (laughs) and none of the defects. You know what it did? It it held these people. It, it, it it, It placated them. It sedated them. It calmed them. And it distracted them so that they never rose up searching for that political power never rose up and resisted their captors and it was the drug that held them in bondage and see when i look at our world today when i look at this thing called marijuana you know marijuana does pretty much the same thing right gives people this feel good feeling it sedates them it makes them passive the studies are so interesting on it because it's so similar to soma it's hard for me to believe and the people that, that I know that take, you know, took it while I was growing up, they were the most passive and lethargic and complacent people I knew. It just chilled them right out. And that's what this kind of drug does to people. And on young people, it's particular, I know it's illegal for young people, but that's not stopping them, is it? And the devastating effects on young people are far worse. And it, it, they are emotionally stunted. They're intellectually stunted. One of the things that primarily affects is what's called their verbal memory and their use of language. Dude, that is so bogus. That's like, like not even, like no way. That was an example. I was, I was imitating one. That was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody thought that was funny. I thought it was hilarious. But you get my point. And and what we have is we have nation after nation tripping over themselves to legalize pot. Why is that? Well, let's put it this simply. If, if I was a dim-witted political leader spending my nation into oblivion, I would want to legalize pop to keep my whole group of people complacent and dull and, and keep them uh, you know, in line. Why wouldn't I want to do that? And that's kind of the world that we live in. And it's interesting because Aldous Huxley knew a lot about drugs. I hate to tell you this part of the story, but it's true. He actually wrote a book on it. It's called The Doors of Perception where he actually experimented with peyote, or what we know as mescaline, and he took these trips, and he, what he discovered, in his word, he said that it was like a religious or spiritual experience. And he had these highs, it's a hallucinogenic, and we know that there's lots of natives in different parts of the world that experiment with this drug, and they do spiritual things with this drug. And of course, what we know is it's a gateway to the spiritual world. We know that for a fact. Do you know what the word sorcery is? In the Greek, the word sorcery is the word pharmakia, where we get our word sorcery from. And we know that drugs have been the gateway to the spiritual world. We've known that for centuries. The Bible talks about it. And so what happens is these people go through the doors of perception, but he warned people that if they became habitual users of it, it would probably destroy them. So along comes a musician by the name the rock and roll connection, by the name of Jim Morrison. He reads the book and he calls his band The Doors. That's the history of that. Weird scenes inside the gold mine, all about his spiritual trips that he had on acid. And by 31 years old, Jim Morrison is dead. You see, that's where sex and drugs and rock and roll land you at the end. Now, just want to take this last minute... And challenge you on one other thing. We look at that and we go, oh yeah, yeah, recreational drugs. That's a bad thing, Pastor Mark. We're with you. We're tracking with you. But I want to remind us that we are kind of a nation and kind of a culture of drug addicts. 50% of all adults take medications of one sort or another every single day. And you know, I understand. People need, some people need them to stay alive. We have a family member who needs drugs every single day or would be dead in, a, dead in a week. I get it. But you know what, that's not true with many of us. What happens is many of us are not willing to make the lifestyle choices and changes that we need to. And we go to the doctor, give me something, give me something, give me something to deal with this, give me something to deal with that. And we're on this and we're on that, and we're on this and we're on that, and people are hopped up. And some people, many people are taking a handful of drugs every single day because they're not willing to make some of the lifestyle choices that maybe could improve their health. It's like the story of this guy, he goes to the doctor, he says, doctor, I'm overweight, can you give me something to help me lose some weight? So the doctor gives him this big bottle of pills, and he says, how many do I take a day? He says, you don't take any of them. You dump the whole bottle on the floor three times a day, and you bend down, and you pick them up one by one. You need some exercise. (laughs) That's good, that's good. So let me finish with one little story here. Some of you know part of this story. So about five years ago, Kathy and I went to Nepal. We went to the city of Kathmandu. We were working with the, the uh, translation project there. Kathmandu is the fourth most polluted city in the world. The pollution just hangs in the valley uh, in the base of the Himalayas and it never leaves. And the funny thing was, five years ago, everybody was wearing masks, everybody in the city, just like people do now here, but for a different reason. Now, I wasn't smart enough to wear a mask, and I didn't have one. The whole time I was there, I didn't wear a mask. By the time I came back, I had lost my voice, and I couldn't talk. I'm telling you, that's like having broken fingers for a pianist. I mean, I'm a preacher, for goodness sakes. So I managed to get through my message the next week, barely. It was just ah, going like this. I thought, I'm in big trouble. So I got in to see a doctor right away, an ENT, ear, nose, throat guy. He looked at it. He said, yes, I can see damage on your vocal cords, but I don't think it's the pollution. I think you've got acid reflux. And he says, what you need is you need these pills. And he gave me this big, huge, honking bottle of pills. So I said, how many do I have to take? He says, three a day. I said, how long do I have to do that for? He says, probably for the rest of your life. And I took these pills home, and I thought, I didn't know what these pills are. So I looked it up on the internet. You can be a doctor on the internet. You, You can find out anything you want. Turns out these things are called proton pump inhibitors. I didn't even know I had a proton pump. I didn't even know I was a cyborg. I thought I was a human being. And here I had a proton pump, and the doctor wanted me to inhibit it. So I thought I better find out what that proton pump does. Turns out the proton pump is very important for your cell development in your body. There's a reason it was put there, and the doctor wanted me to inhibit it which sounded like slowing it down or stopping it. And I thought, I don't want to take these pills. So I decided to get a second opinion. So I asked my daughter. I said, so what do you think? She says, I think you talk too much, Pop. You can always count on your children to give you. A- now, now, when I say a second opinion, I mean literally a second opinion. My daughter's a speech language pathologist. And so I said, no, no. I mean, what's your professional opinion? She says, my professional opinion is you talk too much. You never shut up. Haven't you noticed? I said, yeah, I have kind of noticed that. Why, what do you say? You won't even shut up right now. Can you listen to me for two minutes here? I'm trying to tell you, Pop, you're talking too much and you're wearing out your vocal cords. I said, well, what's your prescription? She says, could you shut up for one week? I said, like, how shut up? She said, like, shut up, like not talk for a whole week. I said, I could try. So I took the week off. I said to Kathy, I said, Kathy, You can't talk to me for a week. She had no problem doing that. She once went a whole year without talking to me. Gave me the silent treatment. She was an expert at that. I had the trouble. But guess what? After a week, guess what? The voice came back. And I didn't need to inhibit the proton pump. Now, I told that story in church some Sunday. Two doctors came up to me and they said, we're not happy that you defied your doctor's orders. However... You made the right choice. Those drugs are really powerful. You should not be on them for the rest of your life. Good for you, pastor. And I went, yeah, good for me. (laughs) And you know, I've just made this decision that I'm not gonna live by everything the world tells me to do. And that's what this whole series is about. Brave New Worlds is about the fact that our world is trying to get us to conform to this, to that, to the next thing. There's all this pressure on us. And Paul says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. We have a higher calling. We have a better calling. We don't have to follow down this path that the world is trying to lead, a path of good intention that leads to hell. We have a path that leads us to the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. But we're going to have to start living a little different, thinking a little different, renewing our mind, and we will find the will of God and we will find life and life more abundantly. That's the brave new world I'm interested in. Amen. All right, let's take a moment. I want to talk to all those online. And you heard me say that the most important thing is a personal relationship with the living God and unless you get a hold of that none of this stuff far-fetched stuff I've talked about is worked it's not even possible until you make that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and it's so simple you just need to make that decision he's done all the work for you and if you're watching right now there's a little hand that pops up like this and if you click that hand you're saying I am ready to make that decision today to be a follower of Jesus And I want to encourage you to click that hand right now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And those in the room, they're going to pray with me. So let's all pray together. Lord Jesus, I confess I've conformed to the world. There's all this pressure on me to do what it demands. But that changes today. Because you died on the cross for my sin. Rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today, I'm a new creation in Christ. Today, I'm a Christian. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout. Thank you for joining us. God bless you, and we'll see you online next Sunday. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose.